you'll turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 11. Our scripture reading will begin in Mark chapter 11, verse 20, and we will be reading through 26. Mark chapter 11, verses 20 through 26. This year we have been going through the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, and chapter 11 marks the last third of the entire gospel, and it covers in those five or six chapters the last week of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus has entered into Jerusalem on that very last week in what is known as the triumphal entry. He's gone into the temple on Tuesday, driven out the money changers in the passage prior to this, and they are exiting the temple. And in verse 19 of Mark chapter 11, it reads as such. When evening came, they would go out of the city. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore, I say to you all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. Whenever you stand praying, Forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are filled with gratitude for your word. For it says that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. It is your word that lights our path, that shows us the way of salvation. It is your word that helps us to understand what is true. It is your word which will stand forever. And we pray that you would illumine our minds Grant to us understanding and open the eyes of our heart once again that we might see great and mighty things from thy word. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. There is a Christian human rights group called the International Justice Mission. The International Justice Mission sets a powerful example of what it means to pray, the habit of praying into their daily practices. Every staff member, every staff member a part, that is a part of IJM spends the first half hour of the workday 
in silence, in prayer, in meditation, spiritual reflection. The IJM staff also gathers for another 30 minutes of daily corporate prayer together. In addition to hosting quarterly off-site spiritual retreats, in addition to providing employees with an annual day for private spiritual retreats, it is a commitment that they have that the power by which they do what they do is empowered by God and they commit themselves to prayer. It is unusual, especially in the nonprofit sector, but IGM CEO, whose name is Gary Haugen, believes, quote, prayerless striving, unquote, leads only to exhaustion. He says, I have learned just how crucial it is to settle my soul in the presence of Jesus every morning. And he's worked for two decades as a part of IJM to combat human trafficking, to combat other forms of violence against the poor. Quote, even though it is tempting to hurry into our work, we intentionally still ourselves and connect with our maker, the God who delights in restoring and encouraging his children, unquote. It is a powerful example that they set, and the powerful example that you set, even as parents to your children, of how much prayer means to you. I remember when I was a little boy, I loved staying up late. Like many kids do, we don't want to go to bed, we'd like to stay up later. One of my excuses that I'd always say was that I wanted to go and say goodnight to my grandmother. And one of the reasons why is because I knew that my grandmother loved to pray. And when I said that, I'd say, I need to go and I want to go and say goodnight to my grandmother. And at bedtime, I knew I'd look inside, peek open the, peek open the curtain, and there she would. She'd be praying, not just for five minutes, not for 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes, a half hour. And I'd be delighted because I'd sit there in the living room, watch more TV, and I'd say, well, I need to watch, wait, until grandmother says goodnight, and I'd be able to say goodnight to her. She'd be able to say goodnight to me, and I'd sit there and be able to do that. And I often wondered how somebody, as a little boy, how could somebody have so many things to speak with God about? But it was exposure to someone who loved to pray. And when she would say grace, we'd have turns, we'd say grace at the dinner table as a little boy. Whenever it was her turn, she'd say grace. By the time she got done, the food would be cold. Now compare that to a conference of 17,000 members of a major evangelical denomination. They were attending seminars on the subject of prayer for spiritual awakening. Prayer for spiritual awakening. And when attending these seminars, they were surveyed about their prayer life. And one would expect that people who would attend a seminar such as that would have a phenomenal prayer life. But the surveys revealed that they only spent an average of less than five minutes a day in prayer. How is your prayer life? Of all the spiritual disciplines in the Christian life, prayer is perhaps only second to the intake of the Word of God. The Bible expects Christians to pray. God expects you to pray. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, it says, And when you pray... 
Verse 6 of Matthew 6. When you pray, verse 7. And when you pray, 6, 9 in Matthew. Then this is how you should pray. Luke 18, 1. Then Jesus told his disciples they should always pray. The Lord expects us to pray. If your spouse goes on a business trip and they go far away, international trip or whatever, you'd expect them during their long haul, to call you or to contact you, to talk with you, just as you would expect when you go into a a shop to have your car fixed. You'd expect the mechanics to be working on your car. You go to the doctor's office, you'd expect the doctor to give you a diagnosis. You have expectations as a person of what they do. And as a Christian, a Christian is expected to be a person who is in the business of praying. We'd agree that if there is a family and they have children, and none of the children ever speak with their parents, you'd probably say, something is odd, something is wrong, something is not healthy about that family relationship. So too, it'd be true, if God's children never spoke to God, or rarely spoke to God, or only spoke to God during the time before they eat a meal and say, thanks, that's all. So this passage this morning, the emphasis is on the subject of prayer, and it provides for us four key elements of what makes prayer effective. What makes prayer effective, and what are those elements that have come to pass, which Jesus presents here, about having faith in God, about believing God in the request that we give, about praying and asking, and about forgiving others. Now, in the passage prior to this, in the context of the passage prior to this, we've just come over this passage where Jesus has gone to the temple. It's Tuesday before his crucifixion on Friday. And in the temple, he has overturned the tables of the money changers, and he's driven out the livestock because they had turned this large outer court called the Court of the Gentiles into a stockyard, into a courtyard, into a marketplace buying and selling or trading coins because there were money exchangers there and selling animals that were going to be used, certified animals for the sacrifices. And Jesus overturns all of these and he begins to teach them verse 17 and says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have turned it or made it into a robber's den. How did they do that? Well, the high priest, the Sadducees, the sect of the Sadducees, there were four sects, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Zealots, and the Essenes. The Sadducees were in charge of the temple, and what they had done is they had turned this large temple area, this court of the Gentiles, which was relatively large, about 25 times the size of a football field, of an American football field, they'd turn this large courtyard into a marketplace. They would franchise out little sections, similar to what you might have in a sort of a fair where you buy a booth, and then they would take a cut from whatever revenue would come in. In order to line their pockets, they had turned the temple courtyard into a business, and there, in the people who were there, they were cheating the people. Because, you see, the people would come to worship. This was Passover. Passover was a massive gathering. Everyone would come for Passover. You'd have upwards of two and a half million people, two to two and a half million people around during this particular Passover. 
And there would be people who would come and they would give their offering because they were required to give their offering and they'd bring coins in and a coin would have the picture of Caesar and of course they couldn't take that. They'd say that was idolatry. You take a picture and say, so what you need, you need to exchange it for a Tyrian coin and we're going to charge you an exchange rate of upwards of 12%. And then you'd go and haggle and haggle and all that and they'd give you a Tyrian coin so that you could give your offering. And then of course you'd have these sellers of animals, animals because they're sacrificial animals had to be certified. You couldn't have a blemished animal, and if they found some sort of blemish on your animal that you brought, well, you had to exchange it for an animal that was unblemished and certified, and of course, you'd get ripped off there too. And maybe you traveled from far, far away, and your little lamb couldn't make it with you, so what'd you do? You'd travel far away, and you had to buy one that was right off the shelf, certified from them. All of these things would go on in the temple courtyard. It became a, a stockyard. And there was so much commotion. The very place that God had intended, this courtyard, courtyard of the Gentiles. And the intention was that people from all over the world would come and they would be able to pray to the God of the universe. People from every tongue and tribe and nation of the Gentiles would come and be able to worship God in prayer. And they had turned it into this animal money trading marketplace, devoid of worship, certainly not a place where genuine prayer was happening. And the nation of Israel had become like the fig tree that they saw. For verse 20 says, and they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. You see, the fig tree had leaves. That's when they first saw it earlier on in the passage. They saw this fig tree with leaves. But a fig tree, a fig tree would bloom and have its figs large and ripe, and they'd pick them in the, in the fall. And then what would happen is over the winter, they'd begin to have these little buds, these little fruit buds that would stay the same time until the spring. And Passover was in the spring. Passover was around March, April, somewhere around there. And in the spring, they would still have these little fruit buds but it would also sprout these leaves. And the leaves of a fig tree, a fig tree could grow as high as 20 feet, provide shade. It was, well, it was considered a blessing to have a fig tree because people would socialize around the fig tree. You'd gather and be able to go underneath the shade of a fig tree and socialize and things like that. And the expectation of Jesus was to come and this fig tree would have these little buds and they would still eat those even though they weren't fully mature yet. But Jesus comes and he does not see any fruit on the fig tree and so he curses it. Why? Because this fig tree was going to be used, Jesus would use this as an illustration of the nation of Israel. One which had full bloom of leaves looking really good but no fruit whatsoever. Zero fruit it was expected that they would at least have the little buds that would be there that they could nibble or eat off of, but it would be just like the nation of Israel, just like the courtyard that they had, oh, bustling with whatever quote-unquote ministry that the Sadducees had set up, but it was devoid of true worship. And Jesus uses this illustration of empty ritualistic worship. That was the fig tree fruitless, though it may have looked good on the outside. And then he turns his attention from what they were doing. 
as ritualistic worship in the court of the Gentiles to what they ought to do, which was that the house of God was a house of prayer. And he addresses the subject of prayer, giving at least four components of prayer that would be effective. And the first thing he says is that for effective prayer, he answered saying to them, have faith in God. Have faith in God. If you're going to have an effective prayer life, you must have your faith in God. Lots of people have faith. They have faith in their religion. They have faith in Buddha. They have faith in Muhammad. They have faith in themselves. They have faith in their school. They have faith in the reliability of their car. Many people have faith in the U.S. economy. We all exercise faith all of the time. You are sitting there and you are exercising faith that that pure chair is not going to collapse underneath you. We exercise faith all of the time. Faith in itself doesn't have any power. Faith is only as good as the object in which you place your faith. Faith is only as good as the object in which you place your faith. And there is no more reliable, no more trustworthy, no more powerful person to place your faith in than the one true sovereign God of the scriptures. And if God is the object of your faith, if your faith and your trust is completely in God, then your faith will not be shaken because you trust in God, the one who says who he is, the one who is all-powerful. You trust the word of God and what it says about God, that God will provide, that God will protect, that God will take care of you, that God in his wisdom orchestrates everything in your life for our ultimate good and his ultimate glory. God will bring you security when you place your faith in God. But if your faith is in yourself, if your faith is in your money or your own abilities or your own intelligence or your own job, it's precarious. That's why people fall apart when they lose their job because suddenly that security that they placed their faith in has been taken out from underneath them. That's why people fall apart and are overcome with worry when there's health issues that they cannot control because they thought maybe they would be the same way and their trust was not in God. The disciples, you see, had just come from this temple and the area of the court of Gentiles, it was called the Bazaar, B-A-Z-A-A-R, of Annas. Annas was the high priest. The Bazaar of Annas, because of all the commotion, the, the zoo that was taking place, people out to make money, don't place your faith in money. Don't place your faith in goods or even yourself. Trust in God. Believe in God. That's what Jesus tells his disciples. You see all these business people, all these people are commotion, all this commotion about making money. Don't place your faith in that. Place your faith in God. And so the first principle is this. You have a life of prayer. Your faith must be in God. Have faith in God and question is, do you truly trust God? Or do you trust in your job, your employment, your income, your education, your abilities, what you can do? What is it that really makes you worried and anxious? Something in the future, perhaps? Something you don't know? Something you imagine? 
Do you think God is also anxious about that? Do you think God is also worried? No. God already knows. God will take care of everything. He will take care of the future. So stop worrying. Stop being anxious because to worry is to sin against God. To worry is to sin against God because you don't trust God for the future. Instead, trust in God. Have faith in God and pray. Secondly, a life of effective prayer not only believes God, but uh, not only trusts God, but believes, believes. Truly I say to you, verse 23, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen. It will be granted him. Now, no one has ever literally cast a mountain into the sea. No one has ever literally done that. And so this is a figure of speech. In fact, back in those days, a rabbi, a rabbi who could resolve tremendous difficulties of interpretation, who can understand the word of God and resolve the interpretation, he was called a remover of mountains. And this became sort of a figurative speech to say that someone could do great things. Somebody could do great things. Referring in this passage that one who has great faith in a great God believes in God who can do all things. Turn with me in the book, uh, in your Bibles, to the book of James, James chapter 1. And we'll keep your finger in the book of James because it has a number of passages that are very relevant. James chapter 1, verse 5. Here in James chapter 1, it is talking about problems that we may have. Consider it all joy, my brethren, whenever you encounter trials of various kinds. And then in verse 5 of James chapter 1, it tells us, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. You have a problem, you lack wisdom, you ask of God. Who gives to all generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. Verse 6 of James 1. But he must ask in Faith, in faith, without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is what the context is. This is the context of having wisdom for problems and challenges in life. We are to ask God without doubting. We are to ask in faith without any doubting. Back in the book of Mark, two chapters earlier to chapter 11 where we are, there was an account of a demon-possessed, a demon-possessed boy who would go into convulsions. And in chapter 9, the disciples could not cast the demon out of this boy. The father brings his son to Jesus. And in Mark chapter 9, verse 24, this is what Jesus says. And this man, he asked, and he asked his father, or Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to, de to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. 
Immediately, the boy's father cried out and says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. This man who came to Jesus came with an attitude that is often perhaps many of us have. This attitude of, well, if you can do anything, God, can you help me out with this? God, if you can do anything about this, I don't know. If you do, fine. If you don't, I don't know. How often is it that we pray to God in that same way without really believing that God can in his ability do it? How often is it we pray and don't even ask for things because we think, well, God won't do that. We don't think great thoughts. Do we genuinely believe that God would be able to do great things? We have to understand that when we come to these statements that it will be granted to you, by the way, it may or may not be God's will. And we may ask with the wrong motives or whatever it may be. So this is not an all-encompassing, all-encompassing promise that everything will be. We cannot ask God for things that are contrary to his will and expect to receive it. No, these are things within the will of God. But it is believing God for the things that God has promised, believing that God has the power to accomplish it and to ask of great things because we believe. So an effective prayer life has faith in God, believes God. An effective prayer life prays and asks. Verse 24, therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted to you. Oftentimes we don't have because we simply don't ask. We don't pray. We don't pray because we feel like, well, why do I need to pray? It's an everyday thing. I expect my refrigerator to be full when I go home. I expect my car to run because I have gas and I expect to. And we have all of these things that we've done in everyday life and we expect other things too. And oftentimes people pray as the last resort rather than the first request. People pray. People pray hard when things are out of control. When they're desperate in life or death, when there's a surgery, when they have lost their jobs, when tragedy strikes, there's impassioned prayer. Sometimes we'll lead people who even begin to bargain with God and confess all of their sins so they can get what they want. But before that, what is your prayer life like? What is your prayer life like before tragedy strikes? What is your prayer life like before a desperate situation comes? What is your prayer life like before your child becomes ill or because of something that has come, that has turned and not been favorable? James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. It says, You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Number one, James says, the problem is, is that you don't have because you have not asked. You have not prayed. You have not asked of God. Number two, when you do ask, you ask with wrong motives. And the wrong motive is that you may spend it on your own pleasures. People have so many selfish motives. We all do. So that we can spend it on our own pleasures because we have a self-centered, selfish life. You know, I was reading a little article this past week. It was a sign of the times, a sign of our culture. You know, people are taking so many selfies these days. There's something called selfie wrist. Selfie wrist. You can take so many selfies, you get tingling in your fingers, in your wrists, and pain that keeps you from working. 
Dr. Levi Harrison, an orthopedic surgeon, says, this is on, on the news, it's a form of carpal tunnel because of the hyperflexion of the wrist appears to cause the nerve to become inflamed and angry. I don't know if it gets stuck like that or what, but they can't work. He says the problem begins when patients constantly hyperflex their wrist inwards in a rush to capture the perfect angle. This, that is the nature of our generation right now. We're taking so many selfies these days. That's how our prayers are. All about us. Our selfish pleasures. And we expect we're going to get what we receive? As opposed to what Maxie Dunham writes in Living the Psalms. She writes, A woman said to a guest at dinner, We say grace at dinner each day to remind us around here that there is something bigger than our egos. Prayer can free us from the gravitational pull of our egos and remind us of the goodness and the might of God. Prayer can move us from self-centered preoccupation to wonder and awe. Your prayers, you see, will only be as great as your understanding of God. Your prayers will only be as great, as great as the God you truly believe in. Our small prayers reveal how small of a God we often picture. Suppose you had a childhood friend, and your childhood friend's name was Warren Buffett. And he is the fourth richest person in the entire world. I looked it up on the internet. He's worth 90 billion, that's B, billion dollars. And suppose every Christmas you got together with him. And you got together with him, and he said, you know what, every year my gift to you is that I will pay off one debt that you have, whatever debt that you want. What would you be doing? You'd be planning for that breakfast with your family. Which debt should we ask? Should we ask him to pay off our mortgage? Should we ask him to pay off our student loans, your student loan first, and then mine? Or maybe we'll just shift my student loan over to yours and then have him pay off yours because it's all your debt. Maybe we'll have him pay for off the surgery because I have all these medical bills. You're going to think of the greatest debt that you have, and you're going to ask him, can you pay off that? I know it's only $600,000. To him, it's a drop in the bucket. What are you going to do? You're not going to have any problem asking him for that. Number one, he's your friend ever since you were in kindergarten. And number two, you know he's worth billions upon billions of dollars, and he'll probably make billions more. Yet when we come to the God of the universe, who has the ability to create worlds just by asking, just by speaking, I should say, and, and he creates by his power, and he has complete power over evil, and there is only one true God, what do we ask of God? What kind of prayers do you have? Because your prayers will only be as great as the God you believe in. If you come before God with an awe and a wonder of who God is, then your great prayers will be greater still because God is the God who can grant whatever is in his will to you. As William Carey said, even expect great things from God and you will attempt great things for God. You know, constantly we are told to come to God, to ask of Him in prayer. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, it says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. 
For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you when his son asks him for a loaf will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? People do not have because they do not ask. And when they ask, they ask for it for selfish motives, that they might spend it on their own pleasures. And the third principle for effective prayer is that we need to ask and pray. We need to pray with good motives. So, believe in God, have faith to receive, ask of God. Lastly, forgive, forgive. Whenever you stand praying, verse 25 in Mark 11, forgive if you have anything against anyone. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven, that's what you're to do. You're to forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Now, in your Bibles, you probably see verse 26, which is in brackets. The reason why they put it in brackets, because it's not in the earliest manuscripts. It's probably in addition later, a cross-reference to Matthew 6.15. But nonetheless, here it says, when you stand praying. Now, standing was the typical. Standing was the typical posture for prayer in biblical times. There's all sorts of postures for prayer. Some lay and pray. Some will stand and pray. Some will be praying in the morning on their knees or whatnot. The principle is very clear here. You forgive. Otherwise, what? Your prayers will be hindered. Unforgiveness hinders your prayers. Ephesians 4.32 is very clear. Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. It is a sin to harbor a grudge. It is a sin against God to harbor a grudge. It is a sin against God to have an unforgiving attitude. It is a sin to hold things against others that ought to be forgiven. God is a forgiving God who desires to forgive. We see that illustrated, many of you already know, the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. The parable of the prodigal son where there's two sons and the younger son asks his father for his share of the inheritance and then he goes and squanders it. Now the younger son would get a third of his father's inheritance. But by asking, the younger son does this. Number one, he disgraces his father. He disgraces his father and he shames his father. How? Because in that culture... It is a disgrace to even ask. What it implies and suggests is that the son, in effect, is saying, I wish you were dead so I could have my money now. And all the community would hear about this. What a shameful act this son has asked. His father didn't have to give it to him, but his father's still alive, but he gave it to him gave him his inheritance, he goes away, he squanders his wealth. And in loose living, then he comes to his senses, Luke 15 tells us, and he decides he's going back to his father. 
Now his father had every right to disown him. When his son started coming, his father had every right to disown him, to keep him on the outside of his property, to punish him, to shame him, to ignore him, whatever it was. But even though he had taken his share of the inheritance, even though he had shamed his father among the community, even though he had sinned against his father, Luke 15, 20 tells us, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced and kissed him. The spirit of this father was a forgiving spirit who always looks to restore relationships. That is the heart of God, who's always desirous to restore relationships, who's always desirous for one to repent and come home, who's always desirous to forgive, who is eager to forgive. And as we look at the end of this year, Tuesday is December 31st, what a wonderful thought to forgive others, to put all the old offenses behind, to wipe the slate clean, to genuinely forgive any and all offenses against you, and to begin the new year with a clean slate, not harboring grudges, not harboring unforgiveness. You know, some people believe that you don't forgive unless somebody asks you for forgiveness. And the rationale in their thinking is that, well, God doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. But I don't believe that's true. That's not theologically accurate. Just ask yourself this. When you became a Christian, did God forgive you for all your sins and give you a new heart? The answer is yes. Yes, of course. When you became a Christian... Did God forgive you of your sins, all your sins, and ask you for a new heart? Give you a new heart? Yes. When you became a Christian, did you ask for forgiveness for every single sin that you committed from the time you were born and mentioned every single incident and ask God to forgive you of every single thing? The answer is no. No one even be able to recall every single offense they had committed against God. And yet God, in his grace, forgave you. Of course we came to God, and we asked God to forgive us for this and that. I remember when I was a little boy and I became a Christian, I knelt by my bed, and I asked God to forgive me for everything I could possibly think of, and I laid it all out and asked God specifically for this and that and this and that. It took a long time, but it could never be comp comprehensive. And yet God forgave me. God forgave you when you came to the cross to ask God for forgiveness and you asked for the gift of eternal life and you placed your faith and trust in Jesus and you desired to turn from your sins. So forgive, even if they haven't asked. The Bible says love covers over a multitude of sins, 1 Corinthians 13. So you can overlook sins. That's a, that's a choice that you have. You can overlook an offense. Don't wait until you feel like forgiving. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is a choice. We choose to forgive. We don't wait until I feel ready to forgive. We choose and make choices, and our feelings will follow. 
So how do you know, though, if you've truly forgiven someone? How do you truly know if you've forgiven someone? Maybe there's some sort of hurt or past wrong in your life. Maybe you can think of a number of things. Maybe somebody's offended you. Maybe somebody's offended your family, your spouse, or whatever it might be. Peacemaker Ministries is a ministry involved in reconciliation, and they've proposed some very helpful, practical thoughts. They propose four promises of one who forgives. The four promises of one who forgives as practical fruits of one who is forgiven. And you can ask yourself, have I done these? The one who forgives commits themselves to saying, by saying, I will not dwell on this incident. I will not dwell on this incident. A person who has forgiven someone else isn't going to be sitting around ruminating over an incident over and over and over in their mind. They're not going to choose to live and relive and then become angry inside over past hurts, past wrongs, past offenses. The person who is truly forgiven says, I will not dwell on this incident. Number two, I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. In other words, this is very tempting. When there's an argument... I won't bring up all the garbage in the past that you've offended me for this and drag out all the dirty laundry that I've been collecting against. That's called gunny sacking. You know, when somebody offends you, you take a little offense, you put in a little sack, you take a little offense, you put in a sack, you remember all these things, and then suddenly there's an argument and blows up, and you take that sack and you, you hit them with all these things, you know? Don't say, well, you did this and you did that. You remember when you did this and you're just like so-and-so and you do this and blah, blah, blah. And you bring up all these things in the past and you keep all these old emails so you can use them against the person. See what you said here? This is what you said. You wrote it. All these past things and you remind yourself of how terrible this thing was that they said or wrote or whatever it was. You know, everybody has bad days. Leave it in the past. Forget about it. You ever think God would do that to you? No. You know, the Bible says in Romans 8, 1, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Someday, as a Christian, if you're a Christian and you die and you go to heaven, you know what's not going to happen? It's not going to happen where... You stand in front, like some of the movies that, you know, I don't know, the end time movies that you might have seen, you know, you stand up in heaven and there's this big movie screen of your entire life and everybody else, your friends and family are standing in the back and everybody's watching, oh, terrible Joe. How could you think that? How could you do that? No, there's no condemnation. There's no fear of condemnation because God does not harbor and have all of these things that he's going to tell you about and regurgitate and hold against you. God doesn't do that. God doesn't keep all the old emails. It's not that God never remembers them. God removes them and he will not bring it up against you. And so we too commit ourselves to not bringing up this incident again against somebody else if we've truly forgiven them. So I will not dwell on this incident. I will not bring this incident up against you again. Thirdly, I will not talk to others about this incident. I will not talk to others about this incident. No gossip, no slandering, no going on and about saying, do you know what so-and-so did to me? You won't believe what they said. <clears throat> no one needs to know the details. If you need prayer, just ask them, you know, I'm having trouble with unforgiveness. I'm not feeling really good. Pray for me. They don't need to know all the details. Don't buy into the worldly ways which say, you know, you got to let it all hang out. Then you'll feel a lot better. 
You know what you've done when you say that? You've basically said, you know what? You just slander the person to death, gossip about them, and you'll feel a lot better. Use your tongue as a weapon. That's not what God says. James chapter 4. We look at the book of James again. Book chapter 4. It tells us about this specific thing. James chapter 4, verse 11. Following. There's no need to go through all the details. One who has forgiven is not going to go and badmouth others about their offenses. James chapter 4, 11. It says, do not, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to speak, to save, and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? You know, when we begin judging other people, judging their motives, ascribing evil thoughts or evil motives, evil intentions to them that we really don't know or have no evidence of. You know what we become? We become saying to ourselves, we're going to be the judge, but there's only one lawgiver and judge. So who are we equating ourselves to? We're equating ourselves to Jesus, God. We think we're in that place? The Bible says, no, don't speak against one another. Don't go and talk to others about your past hurts, past offenses, slandering others. You know there are people whom do that. But there are other people. There are other people that you know what they are like. You never hear them say a bad word about someone else. You know, you have all these sports stars that go up for interviews and things like that. You ever? Some of them will say things about other people, but those who are wise won't badmouth others. We ought to be like that. Now, I'm not saying that you should never call out false teachers or people who cause disruption in the church. There's a category for that. But what this is saying about a brother and being one who is going to be one who judges them and speaks against them and talks about them in a bad way because of something they've done. The commitment of a person who is forgiven says, I will not talk to others about this incident. It's better just to keep mum. Fourthly, the last commitment, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. I will not let this incident between us or hinder our personal relationship. Now that's how the Peacemaker Ministries states that. And what they mean by that is it doesn't mean that your relationship will necessarily be exactly the same but you're not going to treat them poorly. It's wrong to be rude to them, to treat them with a cold shoulder. In fact, if they're your enemy, Luke 6, 35 tells us, but love your enemies, do good to them. Lend, lend. Expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great. You'll be sons of the Most High God. It means that you're not going to be one who is going to treat them poorly as a way in your heart, actually, to get back at them. I will not dwell on this incident. I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. I will not talk to others about this incident. I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our relationship. And in the Young Peacemakers, which is a series for the children, it's summarized in this little poem. Good thought hurt you not. Gossip never, friends forever. 
good thought hurt you not, gossip never, friends forever. It's been said that the person who is unforgiving burns the bridge over which he himself must cross. We are to forgive others so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive your transgressions. This is not about your salvation. This is about a relational forgiveness. And when you don't forgive, you are living in disobedience to God because an unforgiving heart is a heart that is filled with sin. Sins of anger, sins of resentment, sins of bitterness that will come out in the mouth as gossip, as slander. And you cannot come before God and praise Him as we have done this morning and yet with the same tongue slander and gossip about others. So if you want to have an effective prayer life, have faith in God. Believe God for what He can do and your prayers will be answered according to God's will. Pray and ask and then forgive because forgiveness brings in the power of God through prayer. You know, God's grace was displayed, as I conclude, in the life of Corrie ten Boom. Corrie ten Boom was part of the Underground Railroad helping Jews to escape during the war. And Corrie ten Boom, she and her family had herself had been imprisoned by Nazis for giving aid to these Jews during World War II. She had an elderly father. She had a sister who helped. Her sister's name was Betsy. Both her father and her sister died because of the treatment they received in prison. But what God did through Corey during her time when she was in the concentration camp was phenomenal. And after the war, she traveled about speaking of God's love. There was one incident, though, that she writes about in Germany. She writes about it and says this, quote, It was at a church service in Munich when I saw him the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly, it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. Because you see, these were the prisons in which they would conduct, later on, the exterminations of these Jews, six million. He came up to me at, as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fräulein, he said, to think that, as you say, he has washed away my sins. His hand thrust out to shake mine. And I, so often, she had spoken to the people at Blumendahl and about the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. She writes, even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin in them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing. Not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. 
And so again I breathe the silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm through my hand, a current seemed to pass through me, while into my heart sprang a love for the stranger that almost overwhelmed me. So I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on him. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command, the love itself. Do you have trouble loving someone who has offended you? It is the love of God that will enable you to forgive. So ask of God, and God will grant to you a heart like his own, like the father who looked out across the land for his son to come home, always desiring to reconcile relationships, always desiring to forgive. For it says, and when you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, anything against anyone, forgive. So that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive your transgressions. To have an effective life of prayer, we must put the past in the past behind us and forgive. To have our faith in God, to believe God for what he can do, to ask and pray and to forgive that we might be able to start anew just as God has forgiven us. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, so often I am sure people have sinned against us. So often, oh God, people have offended us. So often, oh God, we forget how much we have sinned against you. So often, oh God, we have forgotten how much we have sinned against you. And yet each and every time, you forgive. And you ask us, oh God, that we too might forgive. So enable us in our own hearts, O God, to have a heart like yours, a heart that looks forward to forgiving, that desires to forgive, that will forgive because of the greatness of who you are and your love. In Jesus' name, amen.